Welcome to the audio ministry of Grove Park Baptist Church in Burlington, North Carolina. We pray you will be blessed by today's message. And good morning. Rejoice. Again, I say rejoice. Thanks for that A terrific um, piece of music. And uh, Pastor Mark was, uh, <laughs> I guess he's a preacher all the way to the core because some of those things were to convince you to prepare you to perhaps assist me in getting uh, our ears open enough to hear what God might be saying through Holy Scripture and through my feeble words this morning. Um, I want to first thank Pastor Mark for the privilege and opportunity to uh, be here this morning. This is the first preaching uh, opportunity I've taken since my retirement uh, some months ago. So uh, out of the blue, I got a call from a Baptist not from an Episcopalian to uh, come and take the pulpit for a Sunday and uh, I didn't actually think very hard about it. He's a very winsome man and uh, very convincing and I thought it, the unusual request was such that the Lord's hand might be in it. Uh, I also noted that he snuck a little, you wouldn't maybe notice, but he put a little smile in the bulletin just for me to welcome me here this morning. Fleming Rutledge is the opening quote in your bulletin this morning. Fleming Rutledge is a famous Episcopalian uh, uh, who is of grander stature than I should ever hope uh, to be. It was nice of him to include that. I want to give thanks to Pastor Mark and to Almighty God for preserving me. Uh, by his almighty power to greet this new day and to serve him as he might lead this morning. So all around uh, Christendom today, especially in the Western churches of Methodists and uh, Lutherans and Episcopalians and some Baptists, uh, they're reading a parable from Matthew 25 as the reading for the day to celebrate the feast of Christ the King famous uh, parable, chapter 25, verse 31, when the Son of Man comes in his glory and all the angels with him, he will sit on his throne in heavenly glory. All the nations will be gathered before him and he will separate the people one from another as a shepherd separates the sheep from the goats. He will put the sheep on his right hand and the goats on his left. Then the king will say to those on his right, Come, you who are blessed by my Father, take your inheritance, the kingdom prepared for you since the creation of the world. For I was hungry, and you gave me something to eat. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. I was a stranger, and you invited me in. I needed clothes, and you clothed me. I was sick, and you looked after me. I was in prison, and you came to visit me. Then the righteous will answer him, Lord, when did we see you hungry and feed you, or thirsty and give you something to drink? When did we see you a stranger and invite you in, or needing clothes and clothe you? When did we see you sick 
or in prison and go to visit you? And the king will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did for one of the least of these brothers and sisters of mine, you did for me. Then he will say to those on the left, depart from me, you who are cursed, into the eternal fire prepared for the devil and his angels. For I was hungry and you gave me nothing to eat. I was thirsty and you gave me nothing to drink. I was a stranger and you did not invite me in. I needed clothes and you did not clothe me. I was sick and in prison and you did not look after me. They also will answer, Lord, when did we see you hungry or thirsty or a stranger or needing clothing or sick or in prison and did not help you? He will reply, I tell you the truth, whatever you did not do to one of the least of these, you did not do for me. And they will go away to eternal punishment, but the righteous to eternal life. So I was raised in the church and I heard that parable a million times and it was about half a million times before I'd noticed that both the righteous and the unrighteous had the exact same answer. I mean, you'd assume they'd have different answers because one's righteous and one's unrighteous. They must have had different understandings or knowledge or beliefs or realizations or recognitions but they did not and that's the sad part of today's gospel reading the sad thing from this wonderful straightforward new testament account of judgment Because here judgment is connected to actively reaching out to those in need, specifically to the least of these, to those who are at the bottom, those who are the most helpless, and those who have no other champions, to those with no one else to care for them. These are God's favorites, the one God sees in a special way. However, It's clear that those who are condemned are not condemned for doing bad things or acting unjustly or cruelly. Instead, they are condemned for the good they did not do. You cannot sit out the Christian moral life. There's just no way by avoiding engagement to avoid judgment. Well, I never intentionally hurt anybody. Cuts no mustard at the great throne of judgment. So all of which can tempt just about any preacher to shout, and we have, get out there and serve Jesus in your neighbor. Do good and save your soul from the judgment of eternal fire all at the same time which can make a heck of a sermon, and I have preached it a dozen times. It's great stuff, and it is easy to do. But I said this was a sad 
parable. For notice that those who have been gathered up at the right hand of the Lord, those who are called the blessed of the Father, the ones we want to be, have the same thing to say as the unrighteous. When did we see you? When, O Lord? When was it we saw you hungry and gave you food, or thirsty and gave you something to drink? When is all they have to say. And this is dreadfully sad because of all the loss and all the struggle and all the pain this question implies. These folks, the sheep, the saved, the good guys, they were right and they did all the correct things but they missed the joy of it. They missed the greatest joy of it. They missed seeing the Lord. Brothers and sisters, what are you doing here this morning if not seeking the face of the Lord? What are you doing on your knees in prayer at night except seeking the face of the Lord? When you look at nature and God's wonders, what are you doing but seeking the face of the Lord. Our blessed of the Father have overlooked the hidden presence of God in the faces of those they served. And one of the reasons we have this parable may be to help us avoid that loss, to remind us what reaching out and caring and serving can be about at the level of greatest depth. Because it's very clear. And many of you know from experience, as I do, that no matter how right you are, no matter how much you serve the presence of Christ in others, if you don't pay attention, special attention, if you don't look for the Lord Jesus in those you serve, then like the saved people in the parable, you will not see him. And most of the joy is lost. Most of the joy of doing good and being right and saving your soul all at the same time is lost. Jonah is my most instructive friend in this regard. Now we all have heard the story of Jonah since we were very little and we 
have focused on his running away and the whale swallowing him and being spit up and finally, finally we preach, we get on with what it was that God directed Jonah to do, directs us to do. We run away and God captures us and corners us and persuades us and gets us back on track and we do the will of God and all is well and Nineveh is saved. I have, over the last few years, read Jonah very carefully. And the latter part of the book is extraordinarily sad. If you don't remember, the reason Jonah ran away is because he knows how horrible and awful and terrible the Ninevites are. He also knows how beloved and loving and gracious God is. And he doesn't want God to succeed is what's happening here. He doesn't want the Ninevites saved because they're terrible people and don't deserve to be saved. And he doesn't want any part of their salvation, of their repentance and God's forgiveness. And if you don't remember, he goes into Nineveh, that great city, preaches his sermon. They repent, ashcloth, and they're saved. And the great retribution that they very well deserved, they were awful people, horrible people. History tells us terrible tales. Oh. But they repent, and God relents from their punishment. And Jonah says, See, I told you that you were great and merciful. And you weren't going to do what you should have done to these horrible, terrible, awful people. He sits, if you don't remember the last couple of pages, he goes after preaching, okay? As good a preacher as he is, he hopes and prays to God that this time it didn't work. Please, God, maybe this time. He goes up and he sits on the edge of a, and looks out over the great city and just waits. Boy, this is going to be great. Just gonna like, I wonder if he's gonna use lightning or fire or brimstone or oh boy, I can't wait. Well, nothing happens except it's really hot, and so a bean tree grows up over Jonah's head overnight. And in the day, Jonah is sitting under the shade of the, of the bean tree. And hey, this is pretty good, I can sit and wait for the destruction of Nineveh in the comfort of this lovely shade. And then God sends a worm and it kills the tree and it dies and he's back under the heat of the day waiting for a destruction that never comes. And that's the end of the book. If you haven't looked recently, that's it. It just stops with Jonah in the heat of the day awaiting a destruction that never comes. This is related because Jonah should have been the most joyful people in all of, person in all of Scripture. He's the preacher that God used to save the worst people in all the Bible. And he could have rejoiced because if God can do that for them, imagine what God can do 
for you, for me, who actively seek the face of the Lord. But I understand Jonah a little bit, having served in ministry for a few years and been around a few people that have needed a helping hand. Because reaching out in love to the presence of Christ in others, especially in the least of these and in those closest to us, is quite often a great big pain. It takes a lot of time, and there's almost never any indication that anything of lasting benefit has happened. How many times have you seen the same people in the same situation, the same condition, no matter what you do for them, it doesn't seem to be enough. And frequently, they're not very nice. They seldom seem to appreciate whatever good you try to do for them. So doing good, reaching out to feed and clothe and visit and heal and otherwise minister to the least of these tends to frustrate us and we tend to get burned and to get burned out. Much the same sort of thing can happen when the ones we reach out to are not some distant them but instead are the people we live with and around and the people closest to us. And one would think that serving Christ shouldn't be as hard or as disheartening as it often is. And friends, if you have been disheartened in your service to the Lord over your life, welcome to the club. It is very hard work. I have founded two homeless shelters And I have worked in Camden, New Jersey in the 80s. I've given out surplus food. I've had my coat stolen, my bike stolen, my wallet stolen. Big deal, so what? Wah, wah, wah. But I have been blessed because of that hardship. Let me explain. Because when we're doing something for religious reasons, that doesn't mean all by itself that whatever we're doing will look or feel religious or that it will affect us in a particularly religious way. Cleaning the kitchen in the church or anywhere else is still cleaning the kitchen. Being nice to a difficult person because you are convinced that Jesus wants you to is still being nice to a difficult person. Spending time or money or energy out of Christian conviction still means that you no longer have that time or money or energy. The Lord calls us to serve him in our neighbors, in our brothers and sisters, in the least of these and often the most challenging closest to us. It is a real call, and there are no excuses. It's a real call, and there's no excuses. But my friends, you cannot do it alone. 
In fact, I often introduce myself in some of these various ministries with the words, I'm not that nice a person. If it were up to me, I wouldn't be here. But Christ the King has sent me, and I am his subject. But even that, that is less than what God calls us to in the scripture this morning. First of all, in order to see the Lord, which is what he says you can have, is you have to look for the Lord. You have to look at the people around us deliberately all the time. We need constantly to look as we remember what we are doing, why we are doing it, and what we hope will come from it. What you want to have come from it is a relationship with Jesus Christ the Lord, your personal Lord and Savior, but also the Savior of the person you're talking to and the savior of every person in the farthest corners of the earth. He came to save all of us. But not from afar. But as one of us, with us, and through us. God has left the heavens and come and tabernacles, dwells with us and among us. We must look for Christ on purpose. And we have, if we really want Jesus to show himself to us, to ask him. Ask him to. And I'll ask him a lot. That's one of the reasons we're reaching out to others in a way that is not, that if we are reaching out to others in a way that is not wrapped in prayer, any act of ministry that is not consciously and deliberately offered to God with the request to be shown how the Lord is in it, while certainly not wasted effort, is terribly incomplete. You will become exhausted if it is a one-way street of your giving and not allowing yourself to receive. If our prayers during the day and about the day do not beg the Lord for a look at his face, or a glimpse at his kingdom and all that is going on around us, then we are cheating ourselves and living barely on the surface of a much deeper reality. To try to live the life Christ calls us to live without placing all of that in the middle of some disciplined reflection, prayer, and study is to risk missing the best part of it all. It is to risk missing the presence and word of Jesus that can transform a mundane task 
into an opportunity for insight and for joy that can make doing the things we are called to do a path deeper into the mystery of God's life and into our own. As much as Christ calls us to look for him in the faces of those we serve, to not have that, but when did we see you? But to say, I saw you. And the joy it brings you, the strength it gives you, the comfort it gives you, the sustenance it gives you, the capacity it gives you to continue not only as servant of the king, but as God's friend. As God's friend. Isn't that a whole different feeling? Because, for goodness sake, as we read the life of Jesus and his pouring out for us, it must grieve his heart mightily to think that we do only out of duty and obligation <laughs> instead of out of friendship and love. Do you not remember? A servant does not know what his master is doing, but I, do you know what I've done to you? I've called you friends. And we are called in that friendship to joy. Think for a minute about the churches in your area. What do you hear about them? What are they known for? And most churches have some measure of the Christian virtues that we all value, faith, love, and hope. And that since churches began. But do they have joy? Do you have joy? The author of Ephesians has been impressed by the word-of-mouth reputation the community has for having faith in the Lord Jesus and demonstrating that faith in love. They don't just get together to do nice things for other people and talk about Jesus on occasion. Read Ephesians. They don't just get together to do nice things for other people and talk about Jesus on occasion. Instead, they believe that Jesus is risen and sits at the right hand of God. And they have experienced God's power in their lives. And they have been changed, they have been transformed, and this transformation informs every single thing they do, individually and as a community. Our Gospel of Matthew's story of the sheep and the goats asks us a searching question that can be difficult to bear. Are we admirers of Jesus? 
or followers. Verna Dozier, the great lay preacher of the Episcopal Church, once said, Scripture makes it clear that we are to follow Christ. But that was too hard. So we came up with a way to put him on the wall and put him in a book and worship him. Are you an admirer of Jesus or a follower? Soren Kierkegaard described the difference like this. The admirer never makes any true sacrifices. They play it safe. Though in words, phrases, songs, they are inexhaustible about how highly they prize Christ. But he renounces nothing, gives up nothing, will not reconstruct his life, will not be what he admires, and will not let his life express what he supposedly admires. Becoming a disciple of Jesus is no easy task. Many throughout the ages have admired Jesus, but far fewer have chosen the sacrifice of following. Now there's a sign in the church that's gone around Facebook for the past few years and it says, I'm, maybe you've heard it, that sometimes I want to ask why God you allow poverty, famine, and injustice in the world when you could do something about it. But I'm afraid God will ask me the same question. As Christians, we believe that God has full claim on our lives. And as we come into the season of Advent next week and are reminded that God loved us so much that God would become human, would become one of us, so that we could fully understand what that claim is and how deep that love goes. My friends, again, I repeat, God in heaven is probably not your friend. Lord, Master, and King, amen. But your friend came and held your hand, and dried your tears, and walked alongside you as you grieved, as you struggled. And when you reached your last bit of strength, gave you his so that you could go on. That's what friends do. I no longer call you servants. I call you friends. Gospel of John, for those that want to look that up.
So how are we to translate Christ's love of us to others? When we feed or welcome or give clothing or visit the sick or those in prison, we are in turn feeding, welcoming, clothing, and visiting our friend. Wouldn't you do that for your friend? If you got that call, if you got that letter, if you saw that need, wouldn't you do that for your friend? Through our belief in Jesus, we have the power to heal other people's lives just by our presence in theirs. And we are called to this healing work. And we receive our strength not from ourselves, but from the inexhaustible riches of God. On this Christ the King Sunday, our scriptures are clear about the immeasurable greatness of God's power for us who believe. As we complete another turning of the wheel of liturgical time, may we renew our commitment to be grounded in this power, to seek Christ in all persons, and love our neighbors as ourselves, even though we may look foolish to the world for so loving, so lavishly, and we may fail with God's help, we can also thankfully see the face of Christ. From the epistle to the Colossians, let us end. May you be made strong with all the strength that comes from his glorious power. And may you be prepared to endure everything with patience, while joyfully giving thanks to the Father, who has enabled you to share in the inheritance of the saints in light. Amen. We hope you enjoyed today's message. Please note our schedule has been revised as of April 2021. Please join us on Sunday mornings for worship at 10 o'clock in the sanctuary at 108 Trail 1 in Burlington or on Facebook Live. For more information and resources regarding our church, please visit groveparkchurch.net. And remember, grace abound. Thank you.